The Lord is so good and so wonderful to us. We all be thankful for this evening where we're able to look once again in the Word of God as we look to life and to look to live with God's power within us. And so on this last Bible study of the year, hopefully God finds you well. And we hope that your heart and mind are fixed for study tonight. We want to remind you that on tomorrow night at 10.45 p.m., we will have our watch night service. We hope that you will be a part of our gathering on YouTube. Please consult your church newsletter email for further details. If you do not have the newsletter or need additional information, Please use the contact tab in your LHB app or simply go to the church website and Liberty Hill Larry will help you contact us. We hope that God continues to lead you and guide you through these next few moments and hours of this year. And we hope that you will come and read scripture and pray with us on tomorrow night. We will have a concert of scripture. So please bring your favorite scriptures ready to share them so that we might feast upon God's word as one year is ushered out and a new one is ushered in. God bless you and God keep you. Thanks to our deacon, Deacon Palmer, for all the wonderful lessons that she has prepared and taught. God's blessings upon her and all of you. May the Lord keep us strong for the days to come that Christ might be seen in us, that the world might be ready for that final hour when he shall return and we shall meet him and worship forevermore God, our great God, creator and redeemer. Hallelujah for the lamb that was slain, the one that is risen and the one that shall come again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Welcome to Living the Bible Together. This is Dr. Troy Shaw, pastor of the Liberty Hill Church, internationally headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, located at 4410 Refugee Road. We worship here online Sundays at 11 a.m. We celebrate communion on the first Sunday of each month. Our Bible study is on Wednesdays at 7 o'clock p.m. For additional information, log on to livingthebibletogether.org. Join us here weekly as we're living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. Liberty Hill, living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. Good evening. Welcome to our last lesson in Ezekiel. We will cover chapters 46 through 48. You remember the glory of God departed in chapters 8 through 11 and returned in chapter 44. Now we are seeing his dwelling, the temple, is going to be in the very center of life. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we praise you and we thank you. You are a wonderful and great God who has provided us with your holy word in which to seek and find your will. Thank you, Lord. Please continue to be with us as we complete this study. Through your Holy Spirit, continue to open our hearts and minds to your will and your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, beginning uh, with chapter 46, the first verse. Thus saith the Lord God, The gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east shall be shut the six working days. But on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. So shutting the gate six days seems to serve the purpose of giving special distinction to the Sabbath and the new moon. Israel largely failed and was judged in ancient times in regard to these days. But the Sabbath now will be reinstated for a restored and regenerated Israel. Verses 2 and 3. And the prince shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate without, and shall stand by the post of the gate. And the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go forth, but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbaths and in the new moons. It appears that the prince stands in the gate and ministers to the people at that gate while the priest is preparing the sacrifice. Their day begins in the evening, as in Genesis. Uh, the evening and the morning make up a day. We see that many people will be congregated at this gate. Verses 4 through 7. And the burnt offering that the, priest shall off, that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the meat offering shall be an ephah for a ram, and the meat offering for the lambs, as he shall be able to give, and a hen of oil to an ephah. And in the day of the new moon it shall be a young bullock without blemish, and six lambs and a ram, they shall be without blemish. And he shall prepare a meat offering, an ephah for a bullock, and an ephah for a ram, and for the lambs, according as his hand shall attain unto and a hen of oil to an ephah. So this is a little different from the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law required two yearling lambs. The meat offering has the makings for bread. They did retain in all these offerings the fact that the sacrifice should be without blemish. And this is because all of the sacrifices in one way or another symbolize the great sacrifice that Jesus made for all of us. The sacrifice in verse 6 is in addition to what we've been reading about and very slightly from the Mosaic Law. Israel's calendar was lunar, so the feasts were reckoned according to the phases of the moon. And the offering of the amount the hand can attain does not mean what a man can pick up in his hand, but means the amount he has earned and can afford. Verses 8 through 10. And when the prince shall enter, he shall go in by the way of the porch of that gate and he shall go forth by the way thereof. But when the people of the land shall come before the Lord in the solemn feasts, he that entereth in by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate, and he that entereth in by the way of the south gate shall go forth by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate by where he came in, but shall go forth against it. And the prince in the midst of them, when they go in, shall go in, and when they go forth, shall go forth. He does not normally use the eastern gate itself, which is for the Lord. Rather, he enters and exits by the gate's vestibule. The people's entering and exiting for temple worship are to be done in an orderly flow to prevent congestion, since so many will be present. It appears that the prince will lead them into the area of worship. 
he sets the example of worship for the people. Verses 11 and 12. And in the feasts and in the solemnities, the meat offering shall be an ephah to a bullock and an ephah to a ram and to the lambs as he is able to give and a hen of oil to an ephah. Now, when the prince shall prepare a voluntary burnt offering or peace offerings voluntarily unto the Lord, one shall then open him the gate that looketh toward the east and he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go forth, and after his going forth, one shall shut the gate. This ephah is three pecks of flour for each bullock. He matches the amount of bread to the meat. And the offering is not an offering of obligation, but from the free will of the prince. We notice the east gate will be open for him for this offering. After he leaves, after making the offering, the gate shall be shut until another day of offerings come. This gate will not be open until the evening, but just long enough for him to sacrifice, and immediately after he leaves, it's shut up. Verses 13 through 15. Thou shalt daily prepare a burnt offering unto the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish. Thou shalt prepare it every morning, and thou shalt prepare a meat offering for every morning, the sixth part of an ephah, and the third part of a hen of oil to temper with the fine flour a meat offering continually by a perpetual ordinance unto the Lord. Thus shall they prepare the lamb and the meat offering and the oil every morning for a continual burnt offering. And this symbolizes the eating of the word of God every day. For a person to live a godly life, we must continually feast upon his word. This is also speaking of, of an offering made every day because the, the, the priests eat this offering. This offering in verse 14 is bread to go along with the other offering. The bread was to never cease from the temple. As long as there is a temple, these offerings were not to cease. Verses 16 through 18. Thus saith the Lord God, if the prince give a gift unto any of his sons, the inheritance thereof shall be his sons. It shall be their possession by inheritance. But if he give a gift of his inheritance to one of his servants, then it shall be his to the day of liberty, after it shall return to the prince, but his inheritance shall be his sons for them. Moreover, the prince shall not take of the people's inheritance by oppression to thrust them out of their possession, but he shall give his sons inheritance out of his own possession, that my people be not scattered every man from his possession. And this explains inheritance laws governing the prince. A gift to one of his sons is permanent, but a gift to a servant lasts only to the day of Jubilee, or to the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, and then it returns to him. The land was given by God to each of the families of Israel. It is for them and for their generations after them. It could not be permanently sold or given to anyone. It is the son's land by right of inheritance. If it is sold temporarily, it will return to the family to whom it was allotted on the year of Jubilee. All land was sold with this in mind. The Israels could not sell or give away their inheritance except to a son, to whom it would belong to eventually anyway. And the year of liberty means the year of jubilee. The prince might tax them, but he could not take their land. Their land was a perpetual inheritance from God. We see the reason for this is because God wants them to remain from generation to generation in the promised land. 
The prince is not to confiscate others' properties to enlarge his own holdings, as often occurred in Israel's history when rulers became rich by making others poor. Verses 19 and 20. And he brought me through the entry, which was at the side of the gate, into the holy chambers of the priests, which looked toward the north. And behold, there was a place on the two sides westward. Then said he unto me, This is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, where they shall bake the meat offering, that they bear them not out into the outer court to sanctify the people. So the priest's kitchen chambers are convenient for managing their parts of the offering and cooking sacrificial means for worshipers. It's not the duty of the people to prepare the food from the animals that they bring for sacrifice. It's the duty of the priests. Some of them were baked and some of them are boiled. Those sacrifices that had to do with meat were boiled and the bread, which was called the meat offering, was baked in the oven. Verses 21 through 24. Then he brought me forth into the outer court and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And behold, in every corner of the court, there was a court. In the four corners of the court, there were courts joined of 40 cubits long and 30 broad. These four corners were of one measure. And there was a row of building round about in them, round about them four. And it was made with boiling places under the rows round about. Then said he unto me, These are the places of them that boil, where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifice of the people. So these corner courts were in every corner of the outer court. These courts in the corner were 60 feet by 40 feet, excuse me, 60 by 45. Each of the corners had an area of this very same size, a large kitchen. Verse 23 is saying that it was broken up into several rooms inside the outer measurements. It seems as if the boiling went on in separate quarters. Perhaps the animals being boiled were not in the same room. Notice the word ministers here is plural. Each priest had his own area to boil in. You might say each had his own kitchen. It appears the sacrifices were individual and were not grouped together. And that concludes chapter 46, going on to chapter 47. You'll notice that the first 12 verses of this chapter reinforce that in the final kingdom, amazing physical and geographical changes will occur on the earth, and especially in the land of Israel. This chapter deals mainly with changes in the water. Verses 1 and 2. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under, from the right side of the house, at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without, unto the outer gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. A stream of water flows up from underneath the temple, going east to the Jordan, then curving south through the Dead Sea. Zechariah 14.8 refers to this stream as flowing from Jerusalem to the west, the Mediterranean Sea, as well as to the east, the Dead Sea. Its origin coincides with Christ's second advent arrival on the Mount of Olives, which will trigger a massive earthquake, thus creating a vast east-west valley running through Jerusalem and allowing for the water flow. Verses 3 through 5. 
And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Again he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again he measured a thousand and brought me through. The waters were to the loins. Afterward he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. The angel, the guide, wanting to reveal the size of the river, took Ezekiel in the vision to four different distances from the temple, where the stream was found to be at increasing depths until it was over his head. This water was 1,500 feet eastward, and the biggest flood begins as just a little trickle. Another 1,500 feet to bring it up to the knees, and another 1,500 to bring it to the loins. It's grown into a mighty river. Verses 6 through 7. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. So Ezekiel is brought back to the land so he can see the river of life that flows from God is a restoring river. Ezekiel is brought back to the bank to observe something else. The lush growth has sprung up from the river. Verses 8 through 10. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live within whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from in Gedi even unto in Iglaim, and they shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea exceeding many. So the flow east, then south, runs into the Dead Sea and will render good the salty water, which is six times more salty as the sea that formerly would not support life because of its high mineral content. The Dead Sea is transformed into a living sea of fresh water. The multitude of fish here are said to be the same kinds in the Mediterranean, probably referring to volume rather than species, since the river and the Dead Sea are now fresh water. In Getty, the site is on the Dead Sea's west bank, about halfway along its length near Masada. And in Eglam, possibly is near Quamran at the northwestern extremity of the sea. Some argue it's a site on the east bank so that fishermen on both sides are in view. Verses 7, excuse me, uh, verses 11 and 12. But the miry places whereof and the marishes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. So this could be how the salt of the temple offerings is supplied. As we read, if you remember chapter 
43.24, as well as for food. Chapter 43.24 says, And thou shalt offer them before the Lord, and the priest shall cast salt upon them, and they shall offer them up for a burnt offering unto the Lord. We can look, too, into Revelation 22.2, which speaks of the tree giving fruit for each month of the year. The leaf for medicine is in the same verse. The trees, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The scene describes the blessing of returning to Eden. It's abundance. Leaves, fruit, the fruit is for food. The leaves uh, serve a medicinal purpose. The fruit is perpetual, kept so by a continual supply of spring water from the temple. 13 and 14. Thus saith the Lord God, This shall be the border whereby ye shall inherit the land according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, and ye shall inherit it, one as well as another, concerning the which I lifted up mine hand to give it unto your fathers, and this land shall fall unto you for inheritance. Here we find the border. The picture is that of an enlarged Canaan for all to inhabit. The boundaries are substantial larger than those given to Moses in Numbers 34. Palestine, promised in God's covenant with Abraham, has specific geographical limits within which Israel will finally occupy tribal areas which differ from the occupation in Joshua's day. This is the complete fulfillment of the promise of the land in the covenant. Suddenly, Ezekiel's thoughts are brought back to the land of Israel. We note in this that Joseph is to get two portions of land, and this is keeping with the promise of Jacob to Joseph. This is speaking of the promised land which God had sworn to Abraham would be their land forever. It is their inheritance. All right, we'll see in verses 15 through 20 that the borders of the millennial promised land are described uh, to the north in verse 15 through 17, to the east in verse 18, to the south in verse 19, and to the west in verse 20. So 15 through 20. And this shall be the border of the land toward the north side from the great sea, the way of Hethlon, as men go to Zedad. Hamath, Baratha, Sibram, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, Hazar Hadakon, which is by the coast of Haran. And the border from the sea shall be Hazar Enon, and the border of Damascus, and the north northward, and the border of Hamath, and this is the north side. And the east side ye shall measure from Haran, and from Damascus, and from Gilead, and from the land of Israel by Jordan, from the border unto the east sea. And this is the east side. And the south side southward, from Tamar, even to the waters of strife in Kadesh, the river to the great sea. And this is the south side southward. The west side also shall be the great sea from the border, till a man come over against Hamath. This is the west side. The great sea is the Mediterranean, and Hethlon is a place in Palestine. Verse 16 is a list of the areas that are included in this. The Dead Sea is probably the sea mentioned in verse 18, as the land seems to lie west of the Jordan. This Tamar in verse 19 was a village at the southern end of the Dead Sea. The waters of strife were the waters of Meribah Kadesh. And verse 20 is saying from the Mediterranean to Hamath. 21 through 22. So shall ye divide this land 
unto you according to the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass that ye shall divide it by lot for an inheritance unto you, and to the strangers that sojourn among you, which shall beget children among you. And they shall be unto you as born in the country among the children of Israel. They shall have inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. Each tribe would get a portion of land to live upon as their inheritance. They believed that God had chosen a place, a certain place of the land for them. Verse 23, And it shall come to pass that in, that in what tribe the stranger sojourneth, there shall ye give him his inheritance, saith the Lord God. This is saying that a stranger living among them shall have his portion of the land the same as the sons. And this provision is in keeping with Leviticus 19.34. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and ye shall love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And I'm just going to let that sit there because this maybe should be on the Statue of Liberty instead of the new Colossus by Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Instead, Leviticus 19.34. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And that concludes chapter 47. Chapter 48, verses 1 through 7. Now these are the names of the tribes from the north end to the coast of the way of Hethlon, as one goeth to Hamath, Hazar Enon, the border of Damascus northward to the coast of Hamath, for these are his sides east and west, a portion for Dan. And by the border of Dan, from the east side unto the west side, a portion for Asher. And by the border of Asher, from the east side even unto the west side, a portion for Naphtali. And by the border of Naphtali, from the east side unto the west side, a portion for Manasseh. And by the border of Manasseh, from the east side unto the west side, a portion for Ephraim. And by the border of Ephraim, from the east side even unto the west side, a portion for Reuben. And by the border of Reuben, from the east side unto the west side, a portion for Judah. Each one of the tribes is mentioned who inherited land. We will take note that no tribe receives land outside the boundaries of the promised land. All of these are north of the land allotted to the Levites. Each has joined on the other borders with no space between them. Verses 8 through 12. And by the border of Judah, from the east side unto the west side, shall be the offering which he shall offer of five and twenty thousand reeds in breadth, and in length as one of the other parts, from the east side unto the west side, and the sanctuary shall be in the midst of it. The oblation that ye shall offer unto the Lord shall be of five and twenty thousand in length and ten thousand in breadth. And for them, even for the priests, shall be this holy oblation toward the north five and twenty thousand in length, and toward the west ten thousand in breadth, and toward the east ten thousand in breadth, and toward the south, five and twenty thousand in length, and the sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the midst thereof. It shall be for the priests that are sanctified of the sons of Zadok, which have kept my charge, which went not astray when the children of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. 
And this oblation of the land that is offered shall be unto them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. This is the area that was holy unto the Lord. This portion contained the sanctuary. And note here that this is for the priests. These are the priests that did not commit spiritual adultery by worshiping false gods. They stayed faithful to God. These are descended from Zadok. Zadok was descended from Eleazar. It appears the Levite priests had sinned. You remember in a previous lesson, the priests of Zadok were promoted and other priests were demoted. 13 and 14. And over against the border of the priests, the Levites shall have five and 20,000 in length and 10,000 in breadth. All the length shall be five and 20,000 and the breadth 10,000. And they shall not sell it, neither exchange nor alienate the first fruits of the land. For it is holy unto the Lord. And remember, this is an area about 42 and a half miles by approximately 17 miles. This land was in the hands of the people, but it was not theirs to share, to sell. It belonged to God. This land was holy unto the Lord because it was an oblation and the presence of God was here. 15 through 17. And the 5,000 that are left in the breath over against the five and twenty thousand shall be a profane place for the city, for dwelling and for suburbs, and this city shall be in the midst thereof. And these shall be the measures thereof, the north side four thousand and five hundred, the south side four thousand and five hundred, and on the east side four thousand and five hundred, and the west side four thousand and five hundred. And the suburbs of the city shall be toward the north 250, and toward the south 250, and toward the east 250, and toward the west 250. This part was not considered a holy place. This was used for the city and for everyone, the common people. This was an area for those who lived in and around the city to build their houses. The land described in verse 16 that has been set aside was a square. Each side was 4,500 reeds, and the suburbs in verse 17 are also square. 18 and 19. And the residue in length over against the oblation of the holy portion shall be 10,000 eastward and 10,000 westward, and it shall be over against the oblation of the holy portion, and the increase thereof shall be for food unto them that serve the city. And they that serve the city shall serve it out of all the tribes of Israel. The land, which was not in use in holy things, was planted, and the people ate from the vegetables of the garden. And this is speaking of those involved in running the city that are some from every tribe. We might say they were gainfully employed. 20 and 21. All the oblation shall be five and twenty thousand by five and twenty thousand. Ye shall offer the holy oblation four square with the possession of the city. And the residue shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other of the holy oblation and of the possession of the city over against the five and twenty thousand of the oblation toward the east border. And westward at westward over against the five and twenty thousand toward the west border over against the portions for the prince. And ye, it shall be the holy oblation and the sanctuary of the house shall be in the midst thereof. We can see from this that all of the divisions added together made a square and this residue took up two strips of land on either side of the oblation and this is the prince's portion 22 and 23 moreover 
from the possession of the Levites and from the possession of the city, being in the midst of that which is the prince's, between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin, shall be for the prince. As for the rest of the tribes, from the east side unto the west side, Benjamin shall have a portion. So this is expressing a little more fully that this land is bordered by the Levites. It appears that this land was on the outside of each of the areas. These were on, uh, in verse 23, these were on the south side of the city and were side by side with the other property allotments. Verses 24 through 29. And by the border of Benjamin, from the east side unto the west side, Simeon shall have a portion. And by the border of Simeon, from the east side unto the west side, Issachar a portion. And by the border of Issachar, from the east side unto the west side, Zebulon a portion. And by the border of Zebulon, from the east side unto the west side, Gad a portion. And by the border of Gad, at the south side southward, the border shall be even from Tamar unto the waters of strife in Kadesh, and to the river toward the great sea. This is the land which ye shall divide by lot unto the tribes of Israel for inheritance, and these are their portions, saith the Lord God. So they each got a strip of land, all of them which were side by side making up this lot. They were bordered on the one side by the Mediterranean Sea and on the other by Tamar. Each got a portion because it was their inheritance from God. Now the following verses speak of the gates or exits, 12 city gates, three in each direction, bearing the names of Israel's tribes, one on each gate. Verse 30, and these are the goings out of the city on the north side, 4,500 measures. So everything on the north city together made up these 4,500 measures. All four sides, when added together, equal about 18,000 cubits, which is nearly six miles around. Josephus, a Jewish historian, reported in the first century AD that Jerusalem was approximately four miles in perimeter. 31 through 34. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel, three gates northward, one gate of Reuben, one gate of Judah, one gate of Levi, and at the east side, 4,500, and three gates, and one gate of Joseph, one gate of Benjamin, one gate of Dan, and at the south side, 4,500 measures, and three gates, one gate of Simeon, one gate of Issachar, one gate of Zebulun, at the west side, 4,500 with their three gates, one gate of Gad, one gate of Asher, one gate of Naphtali. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and there were 12 gates, each gate named after one. Revelation 21.12 says, And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 35. It was round about eighteen thousand measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. So the measures mentioned here are reeds. The name... The city is called Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. The departed glory of God has returned, and his dwelling, the temple, is in the very center of the district given over to the Lord. With this final note, all of the unconditional promises which God had made to Israel in the Abrahamic covenant, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant have been fulfilled. So this final verse 
provides the consummation of Israel's history, the returned presence of God. And this concludes our study of Ezekiel. I want to say that I'm grateful to God and to Pastor Troy for the opportunity to share with you what I learned studying this book. And I'm grateful to you for going on this journey with me. I I think it's important to remember that the New Testament does not stand alone. It flows from the Old Testament, and there is such a richness there. It reminds us that God is with us, that he cares about us, that he's concerned about minute details of us. In the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and today, as we live out our purpose in this world, God continues to love us as we continue to await the return of Jesus Christ, the return he promised before he went back to the Father and in the book of Revelation. God bless you. Have a great week, and God willing, a wonderful new year. Thank you. This has been another broadcast of Living the Bible Together with Dr. Troy Shaw from the Liberty Hill Church, where we worship virtually on Sundays at 11 a.m. For more information or to contribute to this ministry, please visit us online at livingthebibletogether.org. God bless you and have a great week. Liberty Hill, living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. (laughs) 